Before we start the show, quick plug. More than 40 million Americans speak Spanish, and millions more are learning. I'm still learning. For all of you, we'd like to recommend NPR's Radio Ambulante. It's the podcast to hear incredible stories from all over Latin America and across the U.S. It's hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón. Radio Ambulante covers a region like nobody else, reporting and storytelling in Spanish. Radio Ambulante is on NPR One or wherever you listen to your podcast. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Every Tuesday on the show, we bring you a deep dive. Today, we have one of the youngest speechwriters in the Obama administration, probably in any White House. His name is David Litt. David was writing speeches for President Barack Obama at the age of 24. I know. What have we done with our lives? Anyway, he has a new book all about the experience. It's called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. Bit of background, David left the White House in 2016 before the election, and now he's a comedy writer for the website Funny or Die. During his time in the White House, David wrote a bunch of the president's funny speeches, White House correspondence dinners, that kind of thing. And there's a bunch of good stories in this chat about all of that. But there's also some real talk, too. David is really honest about how he and so many others kind of fell in love really hard for candidate Obama. And then at some point came to realize Obama, just like them, was a mere mortal. Anyway, that should get you started. Here's me talking to David Litt here in D.C. His new book is called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years. Where are you from? I'm from New York City. Grew up on the Upper West Side. Yeah. You're a, you're a Texan, right? Did Google. I make that? Yeah, yeah, I Googled. Yeah, I Googled. Yeah, yeah. okay, okay. Um, so walk me through how you get from what? Upper West Side, Upper East Side. Uh, Upper West Side. Upper please. West Side. Yes. We're the we're, we're, we're the down. <laughs> what was that yeah. please about? Well, you know, I feel like we're very proud on the Upper West Side of being the like down to earth, totally That's right. sheltered Salt kids. To the earth. Right. <laughs> it's like we're we're the second most sheltered uh-huh. children uh-huh. Uh, on the Eastern Seaboard. Yeah. So you open your book by describing this scene of falling in love with Obama while taking a plane back to New York from somewhere. Walk me through that moment when you saw Obama giving this speech, and you're like. Huh. That's it. So I was, yeah, we were, I was. How flying. old were you? I was uh, 21. I was a senior in college, and I had just I'd spent the summer before interning for the Onion, and I know those people. Loved the Onion. Yeah. Discovered I was not great at writing Onion headlines. Well, it's hard. It's and and they get so many, and I um sort of had that moment, and I, I say this in the book. There's kind of like. It can be hard to tell the difference between the absence of talent and the presence of destiny. Where I was just like, <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe I'm I should do something bigger. Um, by which I meant I'm not going to get hired at the <laughs> Onion. And so I went. Uh, you know, I wanted to join the CIA. That didn't work because I had smoked pot two months before my interview. So they cut that short. Um, there's some some rule that they had. Some rule. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> and with that done, and I was trying to kind of figure it out, and I was on a plane. Uh, it was the end of winter break. Uh-huh. We were going into JFK Airport, and it was, you know, they still had free cable on the flight. Was it JetBlue? It was, like, it was JetBlue. Oh, uh, yeah. I think they still do the cable stuff. They still do. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm deeply appreciative of that. <laughs> and I was just kind of scrolling around, and I knew about Barack Obama. Yeah. I had seen his speech in 2004. At the convention. Yeah. All of my friends who were really idealistic and earnest were into his campaign. But So I, you weren't idealistic and earnest? <laughs> no, I think I wasn't... Um, 
totally apolitical. It's not like I didn't know yeah. that there was an election going on. The, the, I had volunteered on the on John Kerry's campaign, and I think he would have made a good president. Well, that'll disillusion you. Yeah, but it, it left me feeling like, you know what, the idea that I could have done something and the idea that all of my knocking on doors and believing was making mm. a difference was pretty dumb. Mm. And then I saw Barack Obama speak. What was the speech? It was after the Iowa caucuses. He had, so he, so he won just Iowa. won. Okay. And I tuned in 30 or 40 seconds before he started. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, from that first line, you know, he said, they said this day will never come. And I just remember having this moment that was like, oh, this is how presidents sound. You know, I never heard a presidential candidate in my lifetime sound so in command. But did you also, way. if I recall correctly reading this, did you also kind of like nitpicky edit that line too? No, it's when I think Who about it now. Who is the they? Yeah. <laughs> it, Never? At, you want to use absolutes? And th- this is what I wanted to talk about in the book, right? Yes. Is that looking back on it now, I recognize that there's some parts of that line where, you know, the idealistic part of me still watches that speech and, and kind of tears up a little bit. And the more practical speechwriter part kind of looks back and says, well, actually, technically, if you look at it, you know, if, if Edwards wasn't in the race, probably Hillary would have won. And, you know, at the yeah. time she was leading. There's an among... explanation for this. Exactly. And so, you know, it's not actually that surprising when you think about it, um, particularly given the the war and all the other stuff going on and so on. Uh, and how to juggle both of those parts of me, because that's what happens, I think, when you move to Washington, but it also just happens as you go from being a college kid to being somebody who's a little bit older than that, you kind of have to have that moment where you figure out how do I... How do I do both? Yeah, how do I do both? How do I stay an idealist and a realist at the same time? How do you? Um, probably by uh, a lot of gallows humor. Okay. <laughs> I think okay. for for me, that's where... Because I think that's the other challenge. You, know, you move to Washington, you get a dream job, you you start to feel like maybe I'm really indispensable to the president. You forget you're just like a junior level speechwriter. Mm-hmm. And so I think to some extent by trying to stay focused on what's funny about this or, or yeah. you know, tell the story about the time I embarrassed myself in front of the president. There um, were a few. Yeah. Oh, you there were, were a few. You, yeah. you, you <laughs> did not hold back. Yeah. I mean, well, even at the, the, I think it's in the last chapter, the second to last chapter where I talk about being on Air Force One and realizing that I'm not going to be able to, to change clothes in time before we land in Germany. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, this is bad. Am I going to like walk out onto the tarmac? I'm wearing these Hulk pajama pants. You know, is Angela Merkel going to be there? You start, <laughs> you start to have this catastrophic thinking. And when yeah. you're in the White House, catastrophic thinking takes on this sort of international. We should back up because yeah, I read right. it so I yeah, know. Yeah. But like, so you were on an overnight trip on Air Force One. Yeah. And that means that overnight... Everyone sleeps and, like, wears pajamas. Exactly. You were late to get in line for the bathrooms to change out of your pajamas. Yes. This you had is also the, not slept. I hadn't slept. I, I had never been on an overnight flight before. So I was. I did not know that it was going to be different than just a you know flight to Kansas City or Los yeah. Angeles yeah. or something like that. And I didn't take a sleeping pill. Which they pass out like candy. Which they passed out because I thought, what if it's, like, 5 a.m. and, you know, I'd written this speech about how fun it is to be in Germany and a joke about later hosen. This was not a like 
important <laughs> had speech. Had you been to Germany before? Uh, I had. I think I had been like once with my parents when I was ten. But this was not practical <laughs> research. This was. Okay. This okay. was a sort of you know lederhosen beer pretzel speech before All the president. All those things sound fun. Oh yeah, I got to write the fun stuff, <laughs> and then other people had written the sort of serious. Mm-hmm. We need to you know here's what we need to do about the eurozone or whatever. Mm-hmm. But what if the president had edits to that speech early in the morning? I didn't want to be not able to focus. So I hadn't slept all night. We get up and they give us breakfast and I eat, ate the entire thing. Um, should not have done that. And by the time I'm done eating and I look up from my enormous tray of food, because the food on Air Force One, they always gave you too much food. So I looked around. There's a, a room that has the computers and stuff, no doors in there. And I had this kind of stroke of insight where I realized there's a coat closet. <laughs> My suit's in there. All I have to do is sneak into the coat closet, and close the change. door. Yeah, change my clothes. And I almost pulled it off, but almost is a very important word in yeah. this almost scenario. Almost doesn't count. It really does not count in, uh, <laughs> yeah, only in horseshoes and hand grenades and definitely not when changing your clothes on Air Force One because um, our trip director uh, opened the door. And, of course, the coat closet opens directly into the staff cabin. So everyone just sitting there suddenly sees me with, in your underwear. In my underwear, okay. staring out at the rest of the presidential staff on Air Force One. And I th- I heard that um, this story was, was so popular among staff that on later flights, people would reenact it, like just to <laughs> see whether it would work. Um, so I think that, that, that as I look back on some of these stories, I feel like that intense urge to get it right when it's so intense that it makes you do it wrong. Yeah. I feel like I did a lot of that. That's probably something a, a lot of my yeah. colleagues didn't do because they were a little bit better at figuring out the balance than I it's would. It's also like a testament to youth. I feel like the guy that I was seven or eight years ago would do things wrong to get it right. And I feel like the older I get, the more I'm I'm better at just saying, the line's too long for the bathroom. I can't change hey, boss, let me just change once we get to the venue. Is that cool? <laughs> yeah, kind of getting getting used to the idea that, like, I am pretty imperfect and, yes. and I, that's going to be okay. And I can admit that. Right. And I'm also not quite as smart as I think. Like that brilliant <laughs> coat closet idea, there yeah, might be a downside that I don't see. Exactly. But I'm just going to trust that maybe yes. I shouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's, uh, yeah, I learned that lesson. Uh-huh. It's a good lesson to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Let's walk through how you got from seeing Obama on that plane to working for him, uh, you didn't. It it, it it took you a few steps. You interned a bit elsewhere before you got in there. Take us through that. So I landed, became one of those people that would not shut up about Barack Obama. Yeah. And then I graduated in two thousand eight, May mm. of two thousand eight, mm-hmm. and two weeks later, got in my car, drove to Ohio, and worked as a field organizer in Ohio on the campaign. So basically, um, where as a volunteer, I had been knocking on doors and telling people to go vote. Now I was calling up supporters and getting them to knock on doors and tell people yeah. to go vote. Yeah. And it was uh, it was a great experience. Um, and then and in, in many ways, it sort of felt like exactly what you always want out of politics. I mean, hmm. it was this moment when for all the, the craziness of a campaign and all the late nights and all that stuff, it just felt like Things gradually, this entire community is is realizing how powerful it can be and mm-hmm. how together we can change this country. So you so you finish your work with Obama. Yeah. He wins. He wins. But you're like waiting around to get an administration yeah, job. So then possibly I, exactly. Well, so then I moved back home with my parents. Yes. And then I decided that was not going to work. Upper West Side not going to work. Upper, for you <laughs> it was it was less the Upper West Side and more the like the feeling of sitting on your yes. childhood bed like 
staring up at your most improved certificates from summer camp and yeah. wondering what on earth you're going to do. So I moved to D.C. and I didn't really have a plan other than like hope and change. Um, <laughs> but I just plan. knew Obama's in Washington. I want to be I yeah. want to be there. Well, you wrote and I, I love this line. You uh, was it the fish thing? Yes. Okay. Can you quote it? Yeah, I was. Uh, um, well, uh, what I said was I didn't move to D.C. to get a job with Obama or hoping to get a job with Obama any more than a fish fan goes to a fish concert hoping to get a job with fish. And, <laughs> Although if those fish dudes were offered a job with fish, they'd be like, oh, my God. Yeah, which is exactly how I was when I was offered a job with Obama. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I didn't really think that I was going to get hired by the the administration. And you had different by gigs the before because you were at yeah. what, like a... A firm you could not name. I was at, yeah, I was at a crisis communications firm. I think I was the worst intern in Washington well, D.C. This is the one where you played Minesweeper. I played yeah. I mean, I would only answer work-related <laughs> questions in analogies to the game of Minesweeper I was playing at the time. <laughs> Give me an example. So, and I thought this was such a good, sneaky, brilliant, subversive thing to do. So somebody <laughs> would be like, you know, have you? Do you have that memo ready? And I would say, well. It's almost done, but you know how when in Minesweeper you've gotten like 97 of the 100 mines, but you still have three left, but you have like five squares. So that's the really hard part is the very end. That's right. You're trying to figure it out. Yeah. So that memo might not be done for a little bit. (laughs) And as if by like the fourth or fifth Minesweeper answer, it was not incredibly obvious what I was doing or how terribly obnoxious I was. Yeah. You can. Um, Kind of like you were kind of a turd. Yeah. I was kind of the worst. Um, and, And this is one thing I do talk a little bit about in the book is that I sort of came from a universe. I went to to Yale and, um, you know, knew people from like growing up in New York, going to high school and whatever, where I kind of got second chances I did not necessarily deserve. Okay. Um, and uh, I think, um, and I, I felt like it was important when I was writing the book and, and even just talking about it now to say like most interns who do that don't get another shot. But I was lucky enough that I met uh, a speechwriter named Dan Benaim, who at the time was writing for John Kerry in the Senate. And we had coffee and he said, we had this thing we wanted to write. I think it was a piece for Root.com. The, the, the Root? Slate, yeah, the Root okay. Slate offshoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he basically was like one of our interns tried to do it. Didn't go great. You want to give it a shot over the weekend. So okay. I spent the weekend working on it. He thought it was good and said, you know what? You should intern with this speechwriting firm called West Wing Writers. Did that guy make a call for you to get at West Wing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So he knew the the partners there. The thing about speechwriting, it's kind of hard to break into, but then once you're a speechwriter, there's so few of them that everyone kind of knows each other or at least knows someone who knows okay. someone. So you meet someone who knows someone. Someone exactly. you know gets you this internship at West Wing, yeah. and then you go from West Wing to... Well, yeah, so all of their associates were leaving it right in the administration. Gotcha. And so two weeks in... I was like the fifth most senior, sixth most senior person at a six-person firm, but yeah, still yeah. it was like the partners yeah. and the office manager and me. So they hired me to stay on. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And uh, basically, I just got lucky because Valerie, who was the president's senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett. Valerie Jarrett who loves to end her sentences in prepositions, not No, she does not end yes. her. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't mind ending sentences in prepositions. Because well, like humans. Right. Well, and also, you know, I think it's just a style thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I say this in, in the book. It wasn't that I thought I was right and she was just wrong. just difference of style. Exactly. But totally. if you're a speechwriter and your boss has a difference of style, they're right. And that's the rule. <laughs> and... Um, did the did Jared's people in the White House just call West Wing and say who you got, or was there another connection of connections? You know, so my bosses at West Wing Writers had sent my writing samples to John Favreau, who was the chief speechwriter mm-hmm. in the White House at the time. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with him, and he kind of said, "You can do the 
application process. You can try to become a presidential speechwriter um, or we have this job opening for Valerie and for senior staff. You can basically be the only candidate for that job if you want. And I was like, OK, I'm going to go ahead and be and the only candidate for 24. that job. That was when I was 24. Um, wow. How did yeah. how did that feel? You were the only candidate for a speechwriting job in the White House two years after being the worst intern in the world. <laughs> well, I, I would like to tell you it felt great. Mostly it felt terrifying because I was sure it was going to fall through somehow. Okay. Because you do the background check. Yeah. And <laughs> you spend you know, a lot of time talking about trying to get through that. Yeah. You, you know, you have to fill out uh, every address you've ever lived at. Yeah. Um, you know, like some FBI agent called my mom and like talked to her for a while. Yeah. They'll check in with a friend and say, hey, by the way, uh, you know, they're looking for inconsistencies, mm-hmm. right? And then, um, you know, I did sort of have that, that moment. The first time I met uh, Valerie and, and Mike Stratmanis, her chief of staff, and kind of had a quick interview with her and basically realized, like, barring some catastrophe, you have you the got job. This job. Um, I mean, that was the moment you kind of, like, I walked back to my apartment and basically like immediately took my suit off because it was really uncomfortable and then just jumped up and down in my underwear and was like, this is amazing. And, yeah. you know, yelled a lot of swear words and just into the air. Yeah. Um, and it was incredible. But it's also that's the the crazy thing about White House jobs is it's this mixture of this incredible experience and this thing you wouldn't give up for the world, but also an incredible amount of responsibility and stress and having both of those at the same time. And it definitely gets to you in weird yeah. weird ways. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, meeting the president and what it was like to work on a staff of mostly white male speechwriters working for the first black president. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Canary, which believes protecting your home should be simple. That's why Canary designed an HD security system that sets up in seconds and connects right to your phone. Watch live and recorded video, monitor your home's air quality, or in an emergency, sound the 90 decibel siren, all from within the app. There are no false alarms or long contracts. Go to meetcanary.com and save $20 on Canary cameras with code SAM. Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from the Platinum Card from American Express. There's a great big world out there, and no other card lets you experience it like the Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Before we get back to the show, if you are looking for a new podcast to try, try out Planet Money. Give it a fresh listen. One thing people say about Planet Money is how much they love listening to it, even though they don't care about business or economics. Like me. It's explanatory journalism at its best for a time that really needs some sane reporting to focus on the big questions. You can find Planet Money on NPR One or wherever you get your podcast. All right, so two questions. How did you move to the Obama speechwriting staff? And what was it like to meet him for the first time? Well, so the, the basic, the way that most DC opportunities happen is people are too busy to do whatever they need to do and so they give you what they don't want yeah and the nice thing about when i was working for valerie and and for bill daly the chief of staff and others was i would do my work for them but then kind of gradually if there was something the presidential speechwriters didn't have time for or didn't want to deal with i would also take that on Mm -hmm. and so it became a sort of easy way to get to try to to do some speeches for the president where 
you know, most people don't want to do the Thanksgiving video after they've already written three Thanksgiving videos. <laughs> like it's because yeah. you've said you enough about on. Thanksgiving. You yeah. Know? Um, but for me, that was like, this is amazing. This is my this is the biggest day of my life. So I got to be that guy um, who's excited about the stuff no one else wants to do. And I think that was how I started to pinch hit a little bit more the, for yeah. on the president's team. The Thanksgiving speech. This is where you forgot to say God. Yeah, or was that another I, speech? I, I left God out of that speech. <laughs> uh, I feel like you said that in a way where it was like, have you apologized to God? And I'm like, well, no, no, no not yet. It's okay. But yeah. It's all right. No, She'll so, forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> so so the uh, so this Thanksgiving Day speech, that was the first time I met the president. Yes. And this was, we did the taping. So it was in the diplomatic room of the White House, one of the, the most beautiful rooms mm-hmm. in the entire building. It feels very White House. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was standing there and the um, woman who filmed the president, Hope Hall, basically said, like, don't worry, I just wait. It's going to be fine. And so we're waiting and all these things always run late. We're waiting forever. Finally, the president walks in and he's standing up. We all stand up and he sits down. So we all sit down and he's about to start filming and Hope stops him and says, um, Mr. President, this is David. This is the first video he's ever written for you. Uh-huh. And President Obama looks at me and says... Oh, how's it going, David? <laughs> and I, how do you I, answer that question? Well, I remember having exactly one thought, which was I did not realize we were going to have to answer questions. That's the only thing <laughs> I remember. Like, I already thinking. wrote this stuff. Yeah, man. you're like I have no, and like it's like how's it going? I was like, I, what am I going to say? And then I don't know. I literally blacked out. <laughs> like the first time I met President Obama, I I blacked out. <laughs> and um, and the first time I went into the Oval. Uh, I did not black out. Very thank, proud of thank that. Thank goodness. Yes. Um, but it was it was for this Betty White tribute video. and On her birthday. On her birthday, her 90th birthday. And I it was one of those moments where I wanted so badly for everything to go perfectly that I managed to make almost nothing go perfectly. Lovely. Um, I opened my mouth to talk to the president, and what came out was like I was trying to ask for directions, but in Spanish. Like, the <laughs> nouns and verbs were there, but there was nothing the to connect The conjugation was lacking. It was, yeah, it was a mess. <laughs> and, and given that my job was also to write stuff, the fact that I, like, tongue-tied does not begin to describe it, I doubt I made a very good sort of second-first impression. But he must impression. be used to that. Yeah, I think, I think he kind of gave, he gave Hope a look that was like, up oh, another one. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I, I, th- I have heard since from a number of people who blacked out when they first met <laughs> Obama, um, oh, yeah. and, and so and and also people who were there where like a celebrity would meet Obama and and they'd have and suddenly that person who is normally the most famous person anyone's going to meet that year mm-hmm. just like yeah. can't handle it oh yeah yeah so yeah. it was it, and actually one of the really cool things once I was at the White House for a while mm-hmm. was getting to be parts of those moments for other people like you'd see it happen you know, to the yeah others. you'd see it happen during a speech or like he would meet someone who you interviewed. Because he's going to tell their story in the speech, mm-hmm. and an RP, an RP, a real person. Yeah, and so he's meeting an RP, and you realize, like, in some tiny way, I got to be part of the most memorable moment of this person's life, mm. maybe except for the birth of their children, right? Hmm. And that was really special. Like, hmm. just you realize how much that's going to mean. Because every time the president walks into a room, it is like the biggest thing that happens to everyone else in that room mm. constantly. And it was mm. just it, that was an amazing yeah. feeling. I love how you bury the lead with, like, with the whole Betty White story. You forgot to tell <laughs> listeners that you ended up having to hum the theme song of Golden oh, Girls. I did not. I sang the theme song. You sang the theme song. song. Yes. To the president. To the president. That was my, that was the only thing I did right. Because <laughs> <laughs> at the end of it, he was supposed to put on headphones or put in earbuds, pretending to listen to the theme song from the Golden Girls, Betty White's most popular show. And he 
stops and he says, well, shouldn't I bob my head in time to the music? Wouldn't that be funnier? And mm-hmm. it's just like this little thing where it's yeah. like, oh, you're rescuing the economy, but also, yeah, that would be funnier. How yeah, did you do that? Yeah. But, but also, sidebar, how did you, yeah. Barack Obama, not know the theme to the Golden Girls by heart? <laughs> it's a classic. I like, like people have their criticisms of... <laughs> Barack Obama and yours <laughs> this is... This is my biggest critique. Yeah. yeah. Yours is... Excuse <laughs> me, Mr. Culture. President. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> so he wants to know what it sounds like. Yeah. And so I like he looked at Hope, the videographer, and she mm-hmm. didn't say anything. So I looked at Hope, and she didn't say anything. So President Obama looked at me, and suddenly I was like, okay, I know what I can do for my country. And you did. And I stepped up and said, you know... Thank you thank for being you a friend. Thank you for being a friend. And so that... Uh, <laughs> How I, long did you sing? I think I got through... Uh, invited everyone you knew That's and that was when he kind of gave me a look that was like okay because okay. he seemed kind of <laughs> amused so I kept going and we were talking like kind of special moments I, I have a friend who worked on uh, Betty White's show on uh, TV Land oh. and said like that was a huge you know she got the card from the president and was oh. like this is so special yeah. so it's just like you get the chance to make someone's day like exponentially better in all these little ways and that mattered a lot too not just the kind of big national stuff yeah so you end up you know, you work your way up from writing for Valerie Jarrett to writing to, like, all senior staff, then to writing for Obama. But you talk about in the book how, at certain points, Obama's speechwriting team was, like, a bunch of white dudes, right? And you talk about some of the privilege that helped you get this job. What was it like being who you were in a team that looked the way it did, writing for America's first black president? Well, one thing I'll say uh, about the speechwriting team, because I do talk about when I started at... It changed over yeah, time. Yeah, it changed, it over, changed time. over time. And but I there thought, was a moment when it was yeah. white guys. And and speechwriting, I think, unfortunately, like you know, now I'm in comedy writing, so I just kind of keep going from these industries that could use a, a little... <laughs> oh, let me tell you, buddy, I work in public radio. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but it's, it's the same kind of thing where it, it is... There's a challenge of just we should, especially progressives, should be getting more people from more different backgrounds just in the beginning of the pipeline. And I think it's good that the Obama administration did that. Westering Writers is doing that. A lot of people are doing that now. But I, I don't think that there was ever a moment when, you know, for example, I wrote when I wrote speeches for, for President Obama, I thought, well, am I capable of doing this because he had, you know, he's an African-American president, and I am a not African-American. He didn't grow up on the Upper West Side. Right. Like, you guys are different. Exactly. But I think um, partly because he was and is such a good writer that when there were parts that he just needed to add from his own experience, he would do that. Okay. And there was never a sense of, like, he needed you to translate his experience because... He knows his experience. He, yeah, exactly. Were you ever afraid to touch on race or certain topics because of who you were? I think, I, I think there were moments where you tread carefully around those things. Give but that's me a moment. Pro, you know, for example, I talk a little bit about at the end of my time at the White House, I wrote a speech about criminal justice reform. Remember this? It went and, over quite well from what I could tell from what you wrote about it. Yeah, it was, I, I think, the speech, the, the, the sort of non-joke speech that I'm yeah. proudest of okay. uh, that I worked on. And obviously that's an issue that has something to do with policy, but it also has to do with race and justice and equality. And, you know, I, the way I thought about it was... Like I come from a background where if you were caught, you know, with a small amount of drugs or even selling a small amount of drugs, that's a mistake. And if you come from a different part of Manhattan even or look a little different, that's a crime and your outcomes are totally different. Yeah. But I wasn't sure exactly how far to go in talking about that. Mm -hmm. And when the president made edits to that speech, 
it came back much sharper. I think hmm. he had just, you know, it's not surprising. He had done a lot more thinking, both because of his own life, but also throughout his career in politics mm -hmm. about exactly what these disparities meant, what they looked like, why they were unfair, but also how to talk about that unfairness in a way that would translate not just to the crowd at the NAACP convention, but also to a, you know, 50-year-old white guy watching from his couch somewhere. Yeah. And, and that one, I mean, that would, that to me was like a tightrope. You and the speechwriters and Obama were constantly walking. You had to talk in every speech to black America and to white America and to this at sometimes fragile coalition that emerged in 08 and 2012 to support Obama that a lot of folks thought could not hold together. You know, mm -hmm. and you can see that work. And I wonder how much of that work and it working is informed by not just a black guy writing about race in his speeches, but writing about it with white guys, too. You know, right. Well, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And I will say from my perspective where I wasn't. the So I worked for John Favreau, who was mm -hmm. the chief speechwriter, and mm -hmm. then for Cody Keenan, yeah. who was the chief speechwriter. And I think there when those really thorny issues came up they would work that out with the president. Gotcha. So I don't have a, a lot of insight into like, this is the moment when we're in the room thinking about these serious questions. A lot of the time, what I would do is kind of go back and say, what's the last speech the president mm. has spoken about this issue in? How do I kind of take that, but then update it for the current gotcha. moment? Gotcha. But I do think um, one of the things that I am proud of or that I was proud to see in the Obama White House was you know, we definitely talked in speeches about how diversity makes organizations stronger. But as an administration, we also walked the walk. And over time, I think you could see the composition of the White House staff change to better reflect the people we were serving. And I do think that that made things much more effective. Yeah. I think it was good for everybody in the end. Talk a bit about the nuts and bolts of Obama and his use of language. You know, we mentioned earlier that uh, Valerie Jarrett didn't like to end sentences and prepositions. You wrote in the book that Obama was actually really, really good at long sentences. Yeah. What kind of things about the way he talks and writes became even clearer and more evident to you once you were writing for him? Well, one of the very first things was the way that he not even writes, but the way he thinks about an argument. Okay. So there's an old speech writing saying, uh, tell him what you're going to tell him. Tell them and then tell them what you told them. Yes. And that's kind of that folksy style. If I was writing a Joe Biden speech, that's oh, probably yeah. what I would have done yeah. or like a Bill Clinton speech even. Yeah. Um, for President Obama, he sort of thought about it more like a lawyer making a case, right? Okay. So you start with a beginning and a middle and an end. And also, I mean, he wrote you know, his own memoir before he was in politics. So yeah. he's a storyteller. Yeah. He wants a story that has, you know, start it starts somewhere, sort of comes to its Mm -hmm. logical kind of climax, and then it concludes. And that's different than a lot of speeches. Um, and the other thing is some of it's kind of little verbal tweaks, but more than that, like I talk about long sentences, he had and has a, a gift for speaking that meant you could do more as a speechwriter. So a lot of mm. the time, if you're writing for most people, um, I do think the best thing to do is write short sentences because people get lost in yes. long ones and they don't know where to pause and where to stop and where to start and which word to emphasize. And so you just, you write even shorter than you would if we're just having a conversation. With President Obama, he could punctuate sentences even better than you would if you were doing it on the keyboard. Hmm. And so if you gave him, you know, a sentence that had 
six or seven clauses. He could do it. He could yeah, he could not just do it. He could make it better than even, you know, the writer thought it was going to come out, huh. right? He could kind of build to this crescendo that made you feel something, didn't just make an argument, but kind of connected emotionally. And getting to do that was that was really fun. Sounds I mean, that's fun. yeah, it was there's not going to be a better speechwriting job than the one that I had because Although, he's just yeah. Speechwriting now for the current president, that is another interesting challenge. Uh, I'm sure it's an interesting challenge. <laughs> Um, I think, although I, from what I've heard, they've uh, this may not come as a surprise, they've downsized the speechwriting office pretty considerably. No, I think the thing that made me sort of have confidence in the speechwriting process yeah. Yeah. is that you can't obscure who somebody is with a good speechwriter. Yeah. Well, what did you say? Um, like, <clears throat> speechwriters are like personal trainers? Yeah, exactly. They they're, can... they're, they're, they're not puppet masters. They're personal yeah. trainers, right? Like, like, you can go to a personal trainer and they will make you look like the best version of you, <laughs> but they're not going to make you... In somebody they can't give not. you a new face. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe maybe plastic surgeons would yeah. be the right uh, analogy. But to me, it was, you know, you look at President Obama's speeches, and absolutely, he had a team of speechwriters, but they are a real reflection of who he is. I also was interested by, you know, you wrote a lot of the comedy for the president, mm-hmm. and he would do this thing where he would kind of punch up a joke that you guys had given him and make it even more funny. Uh, like, what was the one when he wanted to put Biden... In the NASCAR oh, for yes. a slide. Talk me through that. <laughs> yeah, so Explain we, that. It's, it's a little bit of a complicated setup, but it's got to pay off, so it's all right. He had been uh, skeet shooting in Camp David, and the White House put out a photo of him. This was during the re-election? No, just... It was right after. Okay. It was, um, it was a, I think, a couple of weeks after Newtown, and it was during the sort of fight over this background check bill. Yes. And part of the point that the president was making is he's not anti-gun. He's, you know, they go to Camp David, do some skeet shooting. And of course, the right did wing- Did he hit the- Did he? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was certainly never close enough to the president to be like, you know, behind. Like, he's like, pull. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> that, that never happened. But um, uh, so, so anyway, we had this picture of him skeet shooting. The right wing immediately decided somebody had doctored the image that Barack Obama would never actually shoot a gun. You know, he's anti-gun. And so uh, Cody Keenan, the chief speechwriter, had this idea for a slide where we would do... For the Correspondence Center. For the Correspondence Center, where we would do what really happened that day. Like, it was doctored, we admit it, and then, in fact, the real version would be something that was, like, totally insane. So we had... What things were in the shot? Yeah, we had, like, a a giant kitten shooting lasers out of its eyes, and the president (laughs) was riding... I think the first version was, like, a monster truck, um, you know, and he's like still shooting his gun yeah. and you know, there's like old lightning bolts and it was just like totally insane scene yeah. and we showed it to the president and the, his only edits were like can we have a NASCAR? <laughs> Which was smart because it is Very like smart. yeah it's like the little thing right yes. like a NASCAR is better yes. and then and then we're like yeah, yes Mr. President we can do that and then right as we're about to leave he's like can Biden be driving the NASCAR? And you're like yeah that Biden can that's be it. driving the NASCAR. That's it. Yeah. He right. gets and it. He, right and, he, and, and I think that's um what I talk about is, is when people say that President Obama was the smartest guy in the room, I think a lot of what they were referring to was he could just get the figure out the essence of something really quickly, like way faster than anyone else I've ever yeah. had the privilege of seeing do that. So he could figure out what was important and make the decision that needed to be made or do the thing that needed to be done based on that. Like he had that ability to focus on the right thing. And I think when you look at the contrast between President Obama and President Trump, so much of it is... Can you focus? And do you know what to focus on? You underscore how much of a hand you had in the humor that is now quintessential Obama. 
you played a part in him doing the Between Two Ferns interview. You played a part in him doing the Thanks Obama BuzzFeed video. You actually were the catalyst for Luther the Anchor Translator at the Correspondence Center where I get them confused. Michael Keegan <laughs> Key? Keegan-Michael Key. Keegan-Michael Key uh, was Obama's anger. Like that, you set that up because you saw him somewhere and were like, I like your jokes. Maybe one day do a thing with the president. Yeah. And then you made it happen. Like, how does it feel to know that like you were a part of some of what is now quintessential Barack Obama? It, you know, it feels totally bizarre that I had that opportunity. Because it, writing about the book, sometimes I felt like I was writing about someone else's life because it was so... Hmm. You, so strange to find uh -huh. yourself doing that. I mean, the thing with Keegan is a perfect example, right? Like that wouldn't have happened if President Obama wasn't already a fan and yeah. we hadn't already talked about doing it. But then you have these moments where every so often, most of the time in the White House, unless you're a very important person, you're a cog in the machine. And I, I was proud of the machine I was a cog in. So I'm not I think that's great. You're also a very important person. Um, that's okay. Th you thank are. you. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, you're kind of doing your job and hoping not to screw up. And most of the time you don't. Mm -hmm. But then every so often you just kind of have a moment where you say, oh, hey, I met this guy at a party. I like followed him around the buffet table until I tracked <laughs> him down, got his email. And now because of that, the wheels get set in motion. And, you know, a few weeks later... It's a thing. It's a thing. And 35 million people watch it in, on Facebook in the first 24 hours, which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, it certainly makes me feel proud, but it also, the, that experience gives you a sense of just how rare and lucky this is. I mm -hmm. think um, one of the, the things that I came away from my time at the White House with was an even stronger appreciation for just how lucky you have to get mm. for those dream jobs or mm. moments in your dream job for those to come together. Yeah. You know, you talk now about how skilled your boss was at a lot of things, but there's a portion of the book where you talk about the moment you kind of fell out of love with him. And you say that you began to see Obama as just a guy, right? When did that happen and how did that feel? Yeah. So uh, what I talk about was the first debate um, in 2012. and Against Mitt Romney. Against Mitt Romney. And from the very beginning of that debate, it was clear that things were not going well. And we didn't even need things to go that great because yeah. we were up like seven, six, seven points in the polls. Romney um, had just had the 47% right, comment. Right, just had the 47% comment. You look back at that now and you're like, that's a comment that was going to sink a candidate. But at the time, that was true. And so all we needed was like a tie or even a slight loss. Mm -hmm. And we were like the reelect was mm -hmm. over. We were going to win. And the president, I mean, he just... He looked like he didn't want to be there. Hmm. And I remember watching and just it, it, what he said, if you read the transcript of the debate, and that's the only thing you were judging from, he actually did pretty well in terms of the arguments he made. But as you wrote, he, these are like not real debates. They're dog shows. Exactly. People. Yeah. It's theater. And he just didn't he was just did not want to do the theater. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's what it looked like. And it's certainly the way that Americans felt about it when they were watching. Mm -hmm. And it was this moment where to me, I mean, what, if in 2008 I kind of had that pure feeling of love, right? That just like, I'm an Obama bot, whatever this guy, he, this is the perfect pure guy. Pure feeling of love. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was like just having an enormous crush immediately, just politically rather yeah. than physically. And that's the thing that I think went away that night. It's not that I didn't, you know, I continue to think Barack Obama was a yeah. great president. I'm proud of what I, I did and proud of what we did. 
but this idea that that somebody can be just even better than human, right? Fundamentally, that was just a moment when I had to reconcile myself to the fact that even incredibly impressive people are people, and they don't always do exactly what you hope they will do it, when the stakes are high. Were you crestfallen? I mean, how did you feel? Were you just like, oh my God, this is the worst? Was it, it like a breakup or what? It was, the The couple days after were really awful. Like everyone, I, w- I was working in the DNC headquarters at the time. Because you had gone to help write for the real. Yeah, I'd gone to help on the campaign, on the campaign side rather than the official yeah. government side. And I mean, we all kind of trudged in and it was, um, it was so bad because you just didn't know how far, how bad things were going to get. Like we just kept dropping in the polls every day and I was huh. just obsessively clicking 538 trying to see what was going to happen. It was just this feeling of, did we blow it? You know, did like this was the biggest night of the campaign so far and you want him to come through and he didn't come through. And to me, that's one of the things I, I did want to talk about in the book was coming to this realization that you can admire someone and believe in them but but without thinking that they're perfect because none of us is perfect and i think in politics too often we're kind of looking for the perfect person to come and and say if you know if that if if they come they'll save us right but i mean didn't Oh wait, Obama kind of low-key do that. Yeah, well, did didn't he save us or didn't we feel that way? Or didn't he kind of say sometimes? But there was a one speech where he's like the waters will recede and the this will that and the that will this. Like was hearing what you're saying right yeah. now. Do you think that had candidate Obama and President Obama done a little better job of tempering expectations earlier on, there wouldn't have been such a blow for you when it happened for you and for others when it happened for them? I mean, I I remember very clearly as a candidate, Barack Obama saying in a speech, I'm not a perfect man and I will not be a perfect president. And I remember thinking, well, that's exactly what a perfect president would say. Right. (laughs) And so I think there was not it was was would have been very, very hard to come up with enough tempering to keep the enthusiasm, which was so vital to the 2008 campaign Mm -hmm. and simultaneously be realistic. Mm -hmm. Campaigns don't tend to be super realistic. And that's part of what makes them so exciting. They are about ideals. And I and I think that the next inspiring president we have, we will have this moment where we feel like this is a chance to somehow be perfect. You say next inspiring as, as if this one doesn't inspire you. I'm not super inspired these days, <laughs> I have to say. But I, I do think that we're then going to have to figure out how do you exit the campaign mode and get into the more prosaic governing mode and we're going to have to be realistic and recognize that it's not always going to feel like that. Um, and the, on- the only other thing I would say, because you sort of talked about falling in love, falling out of love with Obama, and the distinction that I would make, and I think I made this in a late edit, is that I feel like what really happened was my idea of what it meant to love a, a person or a candidate or a country changed. Mm. That when I was 21, if I, like, I fell in love with, like, you know, about six different women per semester, um, <laughs> basically only unrequited, but still. And, um, you know, and and certainly like fell in love with a candidate. And what I meant was kind of this person is perfect and somehow they will fix all the flaws in me. Mm. And over time, both in my kind of relationship with Barack Obama or the idea of Barack Obama, mm-hmm. but also in my relationship with Jackie, my fiance, mm-hmm. or with how I think about America, realizing that love is not that love is understanding that somebody has flaws and 
loving them anyway and believing in them even when you're also disillusioned with them. And this is like, I I don't want to speak for Jackie, but I do think speak for Jackie. Like she, know, she knows more about what's wrong with me than anybody. And she also loves me more than anybody. Right. And that to me is a, is a that's a kind of secure feeling hmm. that is missing from the kind of love I so regularly fell in when I was 21 years hmm. old. It's not necessarily moment to moment. It doesn't have that like endorphin rush yeah. every single second. Yeah. But there is something that feels right about it. And that's how I think about when I think about Obama, you know, and his legacy or mm-hmm. um, when I think about what it means to love America, I absolutely feel that sense of love. But it's more of a grown up kind of love and less of this kind of puppy love. You know, it's a, maybe we're just going to go to the movies Friday night this week. Yeah, exactly. And- one of us might not like the movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What else are we going to do? Right. It's a, it's a, you know, we're going to stay in and yeah. that's fine. You can wear love. sweats. Right. Exactly. It's a sweatpants love for, <laughs> for America. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. But, yeah. and that, that's ultimately to me what the, a lot of the book was about kind of Getting growing in up in that way. Yeah. Um, on behalf of all Golden Girls lovers, <laughs> thank you for your service. It's a great conversation. Yeah. This was really fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, man. David Litt, so fun. Thank you, David, for coming in. The book, again, is called Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. And quick favor to ask, you know I always ask it. If you like the show, and I hope you do, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, okay? Also, don't forget to share a recording of the best thing that happened to you all week for our Friday wrap. Send that audio clip of your voice to samsanders at npr.org. All right, that's a wrap. Until Friday, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. I was not writing speeches for presidents when I was 24. <laughs> I was traipsing through Boston drunk. Well, I was traipsing through Washington drunk. It was just what? <laughs> it was the, the daytime. Uh, it was, was maybe different. Uh-huh. <laughs>